So have you ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? How many people remember that movie? All right. Leah and I watched it again last night. Despite the uh, thoroughly 1980s soundtrack, it's a great movie. And uh, the sections of the Mikado kind of make up for the 1980s synthesizer, but I digress. The picture of that story is from history. It's about an Olympic runner, two of them in fact, one by the name of Eric Little and the other Harold Abrahams. And their struggle as runners to win the 1924 Olympics. When Eric finds out that the qualifying heat he's supposed to run is being held on Sunday, he informs the British Olympic Committee that he can't compete. We'll have to withdraw. He runs for God, he explains, and Sunday is the Lord's day and not for running. Well, the committee tries to pressure him into sacrificing his principle in honoring the Sabbath, but Eric insists that he must obey God first, even though the Prince of Wales himself entreats him. He says, when I run, I feel his pleasure meaning that if he were to take away who he runs for, he would have no purpose to run. This is our goal in studying and examining and striving to keep the Ten Commandments this Lent. We're not trying to earn God's favor, but we are trying to feel his pleasure. And those are two very different things. He's created us to be sons and daughters a free people, freed by Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And the Ten Commandments are there so that we do not fall under the yoke of the world's slavery and oppression again, if we'll only listen and obey. Today's commandments have that purpose for us. So let's start with the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. From Exodus chapter 20 verse 7. And I invite you to open your Bibles up to the Exodus 20 passage. It's not one of our assigned readings today. The Deuteronomy chapter 5 version, verse 11 reads, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So why is God so concerned about his name? The commandment is actually a logical outgrowth of last week's second commandment. Remember, the second commandment prohibits the creation of idols as representations of God. And this one prohibits the misuse of the spoken representation of his name. Do you see the connection? Both those things made and how we use his name is a representation that directly reflects on him. And in all languages, words are symbols, the speaking something else. But in God's case, his name is much more than a symbol. As we said in examining the first commandment, his name is actually a philosophical argument, right? His proper name, I am, is a de declaration of monotheism and of his supremacy as God above all. His name is set apart, therefore, as a name that's holy unto itself. And the Lord Jesus reiterates this in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or holy be thy name. 
The first part of keeping this commandment is revering God's name. The Hebrews revered God's name in many ways. That I am or Yahweh or Jehovah, sometimes translated, is often substituted by the Hebrews with another word, Adonai, meaning my Lord or the Lord or just Lord. You can see throughout Psalm 33 that we just sung on page 7 how this gets used, right? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The second verse, the Lord looks down from heaven and beholds the children of men. And the prohibition here and the commandment that Israel is observing is to not make light use or to mock God's name. Mocking the name of God who has chosen to free you actually makes no sense when you think about it. But as we all know, human beings often make no sense. There's another meaning for this commandment, right? The original Hebrew literally is translated, you shall not raise up Yahweh's name for no good. I'll say that again. You shall not raise up Yahweh's name for no good. Now, what does that mean? Well, scholar and commentator Douglas Stewart points out that this has to do with perjuring oneself. Perjury is lying under oath. And one thing that happened in Canaan amongst the Gentiles and was seeping into the Jewish population is to swear by God's name. So it might go something like this. I swear by Marduk that what I am saying is true and he may strike me dead if it's not. The idea is kind of like bluffing in a poker game. You ever played poker? Not a trick question. Poker is not a problem. <laughs> Did you ever play poker, right? And you ante up because you know your hand isn't very good. And so you just keep adding and adding to the pot, hoping that you buy off the truth, right? And that you can fold your cards and move along. Well, that's essentially what this commandment is forbidding with putting God's name to bad use. You see, Israel was tempted to do just what the Gentiles were doing and invoke God's name to cover for them, to cover for them. Israel was tempted to do that. Jesus addresses that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Well, some of us know that we can't make that hair black again, right? even in this room. These are things outside of our control. And that's Jesus' very point. You see, his rationale is simple. That you're not in control of things in heaven or of God or of his name. Heck, you're not even in control of the very hairs on your head, though you like to think you are, right? We like to think we are in control of ourselves, but that's not true. And so at the heart is pride and idolatry putting one's self above the name of the Lord, putting one's self ahead of God and trying to use him for our purpose 
instead of submitting to his purposes. How many of us do that? You don't have to raise your hand because we all do, right? This is part of how we act as human beings. But it's not how it's supposed to be. And it's not how Jesus would have us act as people found in him. And so you can see when you apply that, that this commandment is broken in so many ways, right? By ourselves and by those in our world today, using God's name to further our cause or to manipulate. Sadly, it often occurs in world politics. A recent example occurred last year in an infamous infamous statement by the patriarch of Moscow. Do you remember this back in September? He declared that Russia's action in Ukraine was a holy war and that anyone who died as a Russian soldier in that holy war had his sins forgiven. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. By contrast, the wiser was the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Abraham Lincoln, who was president during our Civil War. Even with the ever-present issue morally of slavery as the context, the minister is said to have rushed up to Lincoln one day and said, I hope the Lord is on our side. And Lincoln responded to him, I give no concern whether the Lord is on our side or not. For, he added, I know that the Lord is always on the side of right. And with deep feeling, he continued, But God is my witness that it is my constant anxiety and prayer that both myself and this nation should be on the Lord's side. Do you see what the president was saying? He understood this commandment and he understood good theology backing him up here. Misuse of the Lord's name is easy to fall into. And so blasphemy appears in all sorts of different ways for us today. We've broken this commandment when we use God's name flippantly, too. When we add to the Lord's name by cursing, or add it to cursing, or damning, or just declaring astonishment, or giving emphasis to a statement. These are obvious traps that ensnare us into misusing the Lord's name. And you will at times be tempted to invoke God's name in your own life as backup for your position, Be careful. You might have done this in politics in the past or just to win an argument with somebody. We talked about that too last week, about making false idols and using God to back up our position. Do not be like those who masquerade behind a pious front trying to use God's name to further your own agenda. Be wary of people who don't know people whom you don't know and some whom you do who claim to speak for God or write with a veneer of authority, but unfoundedly so. Be very careful of people that say, thus saith the Lord, and give false prophecy. Do not trade the treasure of his name in which you were baptized, in which you've been saved, as Jesus talks about in our gospel passage. Do not trade that name in for so cheap a prize. If you do, your adversary, the devil, will use it to treat you as one of his slaves. You see, he'll entrap you with that and use it to show you your hypocrisy and to make you subject to him instead of the Lord. 
Rather than trying to use God for our purposes, we're called to submit to his purposes, not fitting him into us, but rather putting ourselves in the example of Jesus Christ, as our epistle passage today tells us, that we might love God and that we might see him as the loving Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that he is. It's for this reason that we Anglicans literally bow our heads at the name of Jesus and the Holy Trinity as we do at the end of the psalm. For it is, our good, it is for our good as a reminder to stop and remember whom we serve and that he's not a slave master, but a loving father. The next, the next commandment, the fourth commandment, is also a sign of being beloved, chosen, and free people. It's in your bulletin if you want to look at it, or again, in Exodus chapter 20, this time verse 9. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The first instruction is to remember here. It's to stop. It's to remember that this is key about who we are as chosen people of God, remembering who God is, too, in relation to us and all that he's done for us. But first, look at the literal text. The literal text in the Hebrew uses the word Sabbath, which is a tra transliteration of the Hebrew word Shabbat, literally to stop, to cease. Thus, you could translate this, Remember the stopping day. Remember the stopping day. Remember the resting day. And then the second part of it, remember to keep it holy. This commandment has these two parts, which are actually equally important. In addition to that, the Bible gives us two explanations for the commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 11, the longer explanation of this commandment, we read, Six days... You shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Aren't you glad we don't have to say that every time we recite the, the Ten Commandments? But there's something in it, right? The first thing here in this commandment in verse 9 is talking about work. We are to labor. We are to labor. Work is good. For six days, you're to work hard. For six days, you're to give honestly of yourself to your employer and to God giving your best to work. And there's a lot that could be said about that, right? There's a whole sermon that could be preached upon that, but we won't. I'll restrain myself. Look at the next part. The seventh day is a Sabbath or a stopping day. God commands his people and everyone in their household notice, exhaustively he commands the whole household down to the animals to stop and to reflect on God. Work that was not essential was not to be done on that day. Why? Because this was given to set God's people apart from those who are not part of God's covenant people, Israel. They were to be different. And there was a reason for that. 
You know, in the herding and agricultural world, particularly, God's people were living much closer to the edge than most of us. They were living in a harsh world. You know, you couldn't go down to the local grocery store and pick up a gallon of milk or a loaf of bread on, on the Sabbath, even if you wanted to, even if it was permitted. So the first lesson of the Sabbath to them and us forced them to plan and to save and to not be enslaved by their wants and their needs. When walking in God's will, like in the Garden of Eden, God's people have freedom in ruling their environment, in planning and having some control because of God of their context. Remember then Eden. Remember God's plan. That's part of that first justification of the commandment, right? That the Lord rests. And so he's calling on them to remember how it originally was, even though we've never experienced it. Neither had they. Second, God's putting into place the Sabbath to remind his people that he would care for them. He would not let them go hungry. He would not let them starve. He was the, support, the source and the support for their existence, for everything they needed. And thirdly, the Sabbath was to be a sign for them and to others that their God did not need their service like their Egyptian slave masters or those Egyptian gods but rather cared for them enough to command them not to be workaholics, not to be slaves. It seems a strange thing to have to command people not to be slaves and yet look around. The rationale from Deuteronomy chapter 5.15 comes in handy and makes sense in this context. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. That's the second rationale. You see, it's all about being free in God. And so how do we apply this today as Christians? Well, since the early days, the church has agreed to observe the Sabbath on Sundays because Sunday is the Lord's resurrection. The day of the Lord, it's sometimes called, or the Lord's day. And it's called that because Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath like the rest of the law. But he still calls us to it because it's still good for us. He still calls us to it because it gives us freedom. God's law always gives freedom. And it's a testament to the twistedness of our minds that we think otherwise as human beings. As American Christians, we struggle with this commandment greatly, don't we? We used to have laws to help us. They were called the blue laws. Some of you might remember them. And those blue laws were to help us not exploit other people. Ironically, they were gotten rid of in the name of freedom. But who have they given freedom to? Now that we must slave away every day of the week and that we don't have times set aside for rest and relaxation. And that when we do go and relax and perhaps go to restaurants or other things on Sunday, we're forcing other people to work, right? If we weren't shopping or doing that, would other people have to work? No. So you see, this was a ruse. God wants Christians to stop and rest 
And he wants us to plan and have boundaries. We might not be an agricultural or a herding community anymore, particularly here in Lakewood and Cleveland, but the stress, the fear, and the anxiety about being captives to our wants and needs is just as strong, is it not? Think about your own lives. Observing the Sabbath means planning ahead. Get your groceries some other time. Don't need to do that on Sunday. Push those leftover tasks to another day of the week. You do not need to be working on Sunday. God says that you and I need to stop working, to cease and to rest. And the church has agreed as a social community that this is for our good. And it wasn't until the last half of the 20th century that this all went away in our community life. If you're voluntarily working on Sunday, you need to stop. I want to say that very clearly. If you're voluntarily working on Sunday, with the, with the exception of certain people like police, like organists that are assisting in worship, like people who need to work, otherwise others would be harmed, such as doctors and nurses, such as policemen and firefighters. If you're not in those categories, you don't need to work on Sunday. I know that sounds like crazy to us today, but it's true. Sunday should be reserved to the Lord. It's basically the position, basically the position of the church is this, that we should not be working on Sunday unless we absolutely have to, to help other people or to save other people. And the Bible's very clear about that too, by the way, as is the catechism. Look at question 295 on page 17 of your booklet with me. This is our catechism, right? I'm not going to read through all of it, but look at, page, look at question 295. How can you keep the Sabbath? Answer, I cease from all unnecessary work, rest physically, mentally, and spiritually, and join with my family and church in worship, fellowship, and works of love. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you that it's not complicated to do this. I'm not going to try to tell you that it's easy to do this. It's not. It's harder than ever because society and our culture is pushing in on us. But friends, if we don't stick together as a church, as Christians, and push back, what hope can we have of keeping the Sabbath holy? Many times Christians are just too, too timid to ask for Sundays off, right? Maybe that's your, your case. Or maybe you've asked for it off. I had a time in my life where I worked in a restaurant. And I was in college. And it really took some guts to go to my manager and say, I don't want to work on Sunday mornings anymore. I go to church on Sunday mornings. But honestly, I made it something bigger in my head than it actually was. The manager just looked at me and said, well, okay, I'll rearrange the schedule. That was it. Do you see what I robbed myself of out of my fear and timidness? I'm not saying that'll necessarily be your case, but you don't know if you don't try. Second, God wants you to keep the Sabbath to remind you that he cares for you. One of the biggest idols that's worshipped by Americans is self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Now, self-sufficiency, coupled with other things, is not bad. It's being responsible for yourself. That's okay. 
But if we put self-sufficiency completely before God, we make it into an idol, right? Self-sufficiency can take the place of God in giving us security rather than him. And therefore, we have to ask ourselves and be serious when we're talking about working on Sundays. Can I really not get by without working on Sunday? Is my life really that close to the edge? Or am I acting in greed? Am I fulfilling, am I fulfilling my fleshly desires? Think about that for a minute. I can't answer the question for you, only for me. And we also have to ask ourselves, do I have such little faith in God's provision that I can't take a break? Do I have such little faith in God's provision for my life that I can't take a break? So dear Christians, take a stand against your sinful nature and stop and rest in the Lord. Thirdly, the Sabbath is still a sign to other people that we were not created to be slaves or to put it in the modern vernacular, to be workaholics. Notice that the Sabbath was for what we would call employers and employees, servants, non-Jews, sojourners inside the gates, even animals were given a rest. This is the social justice component of this commandment that we are responsible for other people's good, not just for our own, and that our actions have ramifications and consequences in people who work under us or work with us or who serve us. If you're a worker going to your employer and asking for Sundays off, that's a witness to your employer. If you're an owner or a team manager or someone who's in a place of authority and you're telling your employees, I don't want to hear from you on Sunday because that should be a time for you and your family and to worship the Lord, that's a witness to them, whether they're believers or not. Try it. It'll make people scratch their heads. I know someone who told his boss and the team workers that he was part of that he doesn't answer texts and emails and phone calls on the weekend. Now, he's a baby boomer. He's at the top of his, you know, his uh, job right now. Like, he's the boss. So he has the luxury to say that. I get that. But it floored his Gen X and millennial co-workers that he wasn't going to hear from them then Monday, till Monday, and too bad. Generally, things can wait till Monday, if we actually think about it, though. There's a saying that my father-in-law got from his mother, and it's this. What you do on Sunday, you'll have to redo on Monday anyway. What you do on Sunday, you'll have to redo on Monday anyway. And she used to say that because typically when we don't rest on the Sabbath, we do things wrong and have to redo them. It makes sense. A lack of rest, a lack of refreshment, a lack of reflection makes us less productive, not more. So there's that reality too. The fourth commandment also prohibits, prohibits us shifting our labor onto other people. If you're a Christian employer or manager or a person in some sort of authority, you need to keep this in mind. Don't work your employees on the Sabbath, whether they're Christians or not. Give them that time off. Don't require their work. Don't shift your burden onto somebody else. And there's all sorts of applications that you can put that to, isn't there? And finally, keep the Sabbath holy. 
keep the Sabbath holy. It's not just a time to do something else. It's a time that's kept holy in worship unto the Lord. So do take that break. Do stop. But stop with a purpose. You see, in the Jewish tradition, Sabbath begins on sundown the night before. And candles are lit or lamps and prayers are said in preparation for the Sabbath. The same should go for the Christian. To keep the Sabbath holy means planning for it, both physically and spiritually. Think to yourself, how am I going to get to church tomorrow? What do I need to do to get there? Right? That's being proactive. That's planning. How am I going to spend time with God's people so I'm not resentful? That's planning too. Because going to church is a duty, but it's also a joy. How many of us struggle to give three hours to church Sunday morning? Do you realize God calls you to the whole day? I could stand up here for the whole day and be justified. I won't. I don't want to either. I like taking some Sabbath too. And incidentally, I take my Sabbath on Mondays, which is why you don't hear from me on Mondays. But we're called to this time so that we put the Lord first on the Lord's day. And if Americans struggle with ceasing to work, American Christians struggle to get to church. If we're honest, right? If Americans struggle to stop working, American Christians struggle to get to church. The statistics bear that out. There's really only three reasons you shouldn't be worshiping on a Sunday morning with the body of Christ. Again, back to the historic church, those three reasons are illness, inability, or caring for someone who needs you. Illness, inability, or caring for someone who needs you. That doesn't include soccer games. That doesn't include a club. That doesn't include anything else. Nothing should, else should bar you from coming to church. Make Sunday morning at church your priority because it's God's priority for you. Not because he wants to give you some hard burden, but because he loves you. Have the courage to say no. And saying no is hard. I have some friends who had a son signed up for a soccer league out in, uh, I think it was in Westlake, might have been Bay Village, well, mid-season, the team changed their schedule from Saturdays to be and began playing on Sunday mornings. The boys' parents had to tell the coach that their son would be missing church, or would not be missing church, rather, to play soccer. Their son would not be missing church to play soccer. Now, that was hard for them. It was harder for their son, who lost his position on the team, who was punished because... He wouldn't play on Sundays. But you know what? That was a witness to the coach, and it was also a witness to the son. There are things more important, and there are things less important. And honoring God's commandment is the more important. So like Eric Little in Chariots of Fire, we really have no choice. Nothing is more important than our loving obedience to the Lord God Almighty who loved us and died for us. As Christians, we live in his love, chosen by him as children to live, work, and play for his pleasure. If we choose to trade, obedient, if we choose to trade obedience 
to please the world, we're choosing to lose him who is our salvation and our freedom. We're undermining our relationship with him. Not that we lose salvation, understand, but we're undermining our relationship with a God who loves us and desires what's best for us. So dear friends, going forward from today, this sermon might seem harsh. It might seem inflexible. And in some ways it is. But it's for your good. It's for your good. God desires you to be healthy. God desires you to have a loving relationship with him. God desires for you not to be a slave to your employer or to anything else. The Ten Commandments are a sign of his love and covenant for you. His commandments to keep his name holy and to honor the Sabbath and observe it are not harsh, but only appear harsh because we're so twisted. If our desires, if our thoughts are fixed on the kingdom of heaven, we'll see this for what it is, guidelines for a healthy life. But you have been born again. So see the kingdom of God in this. See how God frees you from these things and how taking the hard steps is part of maintaining that freedom in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.